One, two, three. Welcome to the smartest Amazon sellers. Your host, Scott Needham, Amazon seller. I have with me another Amazon seller, but he has a lot of experience in the international marketplaces. So we're going to be talking about specifically Latin America in I've already learned a few things just in the few minutes I have in, in catching up with Mike Begg. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here talking about Latin America with you today. Yeah. You've got a team of 40 to 50 people running brands, but you're from the US, but you've been living in Mexico for like six years, which that's cool to like make <laughs> that jump. Lots of little fun questions, but like, I mean, I'm jealous of the weather, especially in the winter. How do you like it? I think you just nailed why I moved down here is essentially the weather. I'm from Connecticut originally, and I love the summers, but the winters were terrible. So I ended up down here and the weather is phenomenal. <laughs> so Mexico does have Prime Day, but you told me that your wife, like actually, she's like, ah, oh, we just buy from the US Prime Day. It's just a little bit better. Yeah, there's more selection. I mean, that's one of the general things about Mexico is you don't have as much selection. And most people are like, most sellers are focused on the US. They're not focused on Mexico. so. When you're looking for good deals, just buying from the U.S. is usually the route and to go. I hear a lot of people talk about Canada next. They're like, oh, you got U.S.? Like, I used to do Canada. You know, you can do the NARF program or whatever. Canada is a really small country. It's like 35 million or something like that. Mexico's four times its size. I'm actually curious. GDP of Canada versus Mexico. What are we going to get? It certainly is a large economy. It's yeah. growing faster and it's adopting online shopping. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good high level overview of Mexico. So, for example, I think last year, 2022, it was the second fastest growing, or maybe 2021, it was the second fastest growing e commerce marketplace worldwide, where we talk about number of people, like you said, 127 million. The middle class is growing. It's got great proximity to the US, which makes it easy for a seller. And actually, I think this news was yesterday is that. Mexico actually passed China as the largest trade partner of the U.S. So more and more U.S. dollars are flowing down here, which means more and more people are going to have money to buy products. Yeah, no, they've definitely benefited from, you know, being our neighbor. And there's a lot of like people are looking at Mexico for manufacturing. It's like, hey, you know, less tariffs from like, you know, those Chinese tariffs don't apply. It's closer, you know, you could fly down in like three hours to yeah. most cities, which reminds me, I probably need to go back to Mexico pretty soon. I actually got engaged in Mexico a few years ago. So the proximity is like so easy. I have a lot of friends actually that are working on contract manufacturing. And in general, another interesting thing is like, there's a lot of Chinese money pouring into Mexico as well, investing in factories. It's very smart, you know, because Chinese knows, they know manufacturing and yeah. that sounds very interesting. Well, actually, if people have listened to my podcast for a long time, they know NARF fairly well, very easy to turn on. It actually got my business in trouble recently. We got Mexico suspended because of restricted products. That's a side issue. That's probably more about my product mix than anyone else's. But like NARF is like, you know, it's easy to get one, two, three percent extra revenue. But in general, it's not like an awesome experience for the, the people down in Mexico. No, it's actually a pretty crappy experience when we think about it. So for example, like if I want to buy something from the US, and it depends on the category because certain categories do have fees and taxes and tariffs. It's not, you know, a hundred percent across the board in Mexico that there's no tariffs on US products. But right. 
for some products, I'll need to pay a deposit for the customs cost, which can end up being about 100% of the product. I have to pay 16% EBA on each order and the cost of the shipment down plus shipping. So I could end up paying two to three times the cost of the product from the US just to get the product here in Mexico. And is that using NARF or is that just like, you know, buying from any sort of? That's using NARF. And NARF, honestly, it's kind of a really not even legal in a lot of senses. Like, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. Like a lot of products are restricted. Like you can't have supplements. You can't have cosmetics in NARF because it's violating essentially the FDA in Mexico, you know, their rules about bringing products into the country. I've definitely have had that thought at times. I'm like, I feel like we're skirting around something yeah. like there's got to be some different tax implications that we're uh, jumping around. Either way, I mean, Amazon has their program, but guess what? Amazon has Amazon Mexico. And if you can figure out logistics and FBA, like it's not the hardest lift if you already understand Amazon. So your agency does a lot of things, but like what I was, you know, really want to dive in is like, you just know, like the Latin American thing. So tell us a little bit more about like, you know, a rollout strategy into Latin America. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this, but typically the way that we approach this with most clients and most companies is to focus on Mexico first, just because of proximity. And there's a lot of other way, things like cultural. There's a lot of Mexicans that are born in the U.S. come back to Mexico. So there's really a lot of cultural similarities when it comes to actually product purchasing as well, which is another useful thing for a lot of brands. If you want to come down to Mexico, you essentially need a tax ID to bring products into the country. The RFC ID, you cannot ship to FBA without it. Yes, exactly. You need that to get into FBA. And you also need that to get into Mercado Full for Mercado Libre. What's Mercado Full? It's the same as, you know, FBA. It, Okay. That's what I thought it was. I've yeah. never heard that they've done it. Great. It's actually the largest fulfillment network in Mexico. It's bigger than Amazon. Is Mercado Libre bigger than Amazon? They're about the same size. I think Amazon actually just passed it, but from a fulfillment and logistics side, Mercado Full is way, way better than Amazon. Really? Yeah. Okay. At least here in Mexico. But anyway, like we were saying, tax IDs, bringing those in, you need an importer record with a tax ID to get the product into the country. You could, in theory, work with a 3PL to bring the product in and house it in a 3PL warehouse. But legally, the 3PL owns the inventory at that point, which you know creates all types of potential issues for you. And like you said, you still can't get it into a lot of, into the FBA program, into the Mercado Full program. You can't sell to you know, retail distribution if you had the opportunity. The only benefit of bringing it to a 3PL would essentially be if you launched your e-commerce website in Mexico and then use that warehouse to fulfill orders from there. So that essentially sounds, you need a tax ID no matter what. That sounds complicated. I'm into FBA. <laughs> yeah, generally most people are. Like I said, you need a tax ID. If you get a tax ID, you well, need a business. I was uh, telling Mike, I tried to ship a product to Mexico <laughs> and I wish I never tried. It was... <laughs> A lot of dumb conversations, you know, lawyers, I think I'd even talked to a guy that's like, oh, we got a really good shipping option. You give it to us in Texas. And then we drive it across the border. And then like, <laughs> that's, how, that's how we get like better shipping rates. And I'm like, I don't know. It's tricky. Like you said, like getting into most countries just has like hurdles. Yeah. For sure. And Mexico is no different there. It's actually probably one of the more difficult countries to get into. I mean, you talked about why about Canada and Canada is an easy one because the rules are pretty similar to the U.S. It's pretty easy to send product if you wanted to do FBA there. 
Mexico and the Latin American markets in general are a completely different beast. I mean, we're talking about a lot of protectionism, just a lot of challenges in doing business, even for Mexican businesses here. Like I have a business here in Mexico and alone, just getting that set up, getting that running, that was incredibly difficult. So most brands have a, a big opportunity here in Mexico, but being able to actually realize it is a big challenge and you need a lot of people involved to, to make it happen. Yeah, totally. Now, there's some product that kind of gets you excited. You're like, oh, this will crush it in Mexico. What categories that are like, do the Mexican consumers just like not have access to? There's a lot, but the three big categories are electronics. Electronics is probably the number one category. We work really close with Mercado Libre and Mercado Libre tells us like, hey, can you get more electronic brands down here? So there's a huge demand here in Mexico for electronics. The other two being cosmetics. And supplements, I can tell you with cosmetics, every time I go back to the US, my wife, all of her friends, her, her family, they're all asking me to bring cosmetics back down for them. So they're like, go to Sephora, buy everything there. And then <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like the variety of products just aren't here. I mean, we have some stores that are similar, but specialty like dermatological stuff, like hydrolyric acid and like all those types of things, you can't find. They're not. Yeah. Do you see that more as like a brand opportunity or do you actually see an arbitrage opportunity? You have experience with like retail arbitrage. Do you think anyone would make a killing if they figure this like out and they're like, oh, I can do this legally, this, 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 and then like yeah. no competition. So that's a tough one. <laughs> so there's a lot of Mexicans along the border that are doing this. So a lot of them are literally driving over and bringing the products back into Mexico and then selling. The problem is, well, at least from the consumer standpoint, is let's say your product costs $50 in the US. By the time that they list the product here in Mexico, it's going to cost $125, $150 for someone. So there are people arbitraging here in Mexico that are taking massive profits from people that want these products that they can't get access to. Yeah. For a US seller, it's definitely more challenging to arbitrage it because of the tax ID, because of a lot of the other implications. Well, let's but, say uh, if you don't live on the border, you know, you're probably going to have a hard time here. Yes, exactly. Arbitrage opportunities are limited if you're not in a border state. Again, a lot of Mexicans are taking advantage of it. Even arbitrage between platforms like Mercado Libre, Amazon, Walmart, Copal, Liverpool. So there are people taking advantage here in Mexico, but for U.S. sellers, it's more challenging. Right. But let's say your manufacturing is in China. Can you get into Mexico at the same like landed costs? I haven't checked the cost recently, but the last time I brought a product in or I brought packaging in actually from China, the cost to bring it into LA versus bring it into Manzanillo, which is a port close, close to, to Guadalajara here. It was about four times more expensive to bring it into LA. So then that basically says like, well, brands should just be going direct because, you know, you can undercut the arbitragers. Those people have to like, you know, play a different game. Yeah. They're buying at retail price to then sell at an inflated retail price where like you can just sell at a retail price if you have, you know, those just regular manufacturing costs. Okay. So, you know, cosmetics, electronics, supplements, do they have to go through approvals? Yeah. So they do. That's another one of the challenges. So a lot of larger brands like Userin, La Roche, they already have approvals here in Mexico. So for example, if you bought it in the US and brought it over, you could sell it. If you have your own brand of cosmetics or your own brand of supplements, you need to get approval from Cofe Priest, which is essentially the equivalent of the FDA in the US. 
But you have a little bit of experience with that. I do. Yeah. We actually help a lot of companies with that. So the process itself, we also do this with pet supplies, but that's a little bit of a different story. It's a little bit of a different agency down here, but high level overview, the process to get an approval with Kofi Priest is you need a business here. You need a business partner here. You need a legal representative here. And then from there you can go apply and it's about a two to three month process to get approval. All right. Not impossible, but. Well, when you think of some of those challenges, I mean, just getting a business here can take four to six months. Getting a tax ID here can take up to three months just to get an appointment for a tax ID. So, I mean, you're looking at possibly seven to 12 months to even be able to go apply and then another three months to get the approval. Now I'm going to throw a question at you, a curveball that's close to home for me. So I've got a private label brand. It's not what I would call a focused brand. I would say there are just a lot of yeah, decent base hit products, mm-hmm. you know, everything from like some kitchen accessories to like ping pong paddles to decor, like dinner bells, you know, they probably sell five, 10 units a day in the U S is that worth it to go to Mexico? Well, just from a standpoint of advertising competition, the cost in Mexico are 10% of the cost in the U S well, I mean, we like that. That's usually a good sign. So yeah, I mean, that alone probably presents a good opportunity for you to bring your products down. I mean, we see cost per click. Supplement is a category. We do a lot of work with AMT advisors in the US. Protein, cost per clicks for protein in the US can be $25, can be higher than that. Cost per clicks in Mexico, two, $3. So we're talking about a huge difference in what it actually costs from the advertising stand. I hope at least one person listening just like, just got really excited. Cause that is actually considerable, the difference. And so people that like are wondering like, why would people pay so much for a click? Well, that's just the lifetime value That's buying a new customer. And if they repeat purchase, then, you know, that's how the economics works in those types of areas. And if you really get a good customer, they're usually going to turn a few people on to a brand. Same as cosmetics that has repeat purchase. So those are good brands. And if you can get like customers, that's great. I like that. Yeah. And with like, I almost think that there's an opportunity because like just the media that people are watching, it's like beauty trends. They pass like borders like every day now, or like if someone like starts something new, they've seen something on TikTok. TikTok, yeah. And then like just this awareness uh, beauty. So like, I wouldn't think that they would be behind at all. And then they just don't have easy access to some stuff. That's mainly it. It's the lack of access. I mean, there's a lot of people that want stuff. There's like I said, I mean, I bring stuff back from the U.S. every time I go. But I think you just made a really good point from a marketability standpoint is that platforms like TikTok, like social media in general, even influencers on YouTube, they're really pushing cosmetics. And likewise, if you can create the same content in Spanish, you can start pushing a lot of cosmetics in Latin American marketplaces. So there's a lot like for me, when I look at like the opportunities in Mexico, it's almost unlimited if you just get a little creative on how you want to reach people. Yeah. No, I love it. Now, I know this is like usually what you do at the beginning, but like, I think your journey into Amazon was a little bit interesting. You worked for a company that was ultimately crushed by Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Sears, they didn't do too well in the e-commerce world. I started at Sears in, it was 2013. I was working in the real estate development department. And at that time, we were pretty much asset stripping Sears. We were trying to figure out how do we get the most value for the real estate assets that we have. We spun off a $2 billion real estate investment trust. We were looking at redeveloping properties and leasing them to other companies. We were closing stores left and right, particularly the other company that Sears owned was Kmart. 
And not many people realize that. And Kmart was another one that was like just terrible. Sears always owned Kmart. Sears bought Kmart in 2007. In the later years. That's interesting. Kind of a a last grasp. Well, I I mean, really Sears didn't start declining until like 2010. That's really when the performance started dropping off and where e-commerce started growing a lot. So, I mean, the company itself was pretty healthy. The Kmart purchase was a terrible decision because Kmart was not doing well at all. And it literally drained all the financial performance from Sears. So, yeah, I just listened to a history of Walmart and I'm like, yeah, Kmart didn't do so hot. Basically the story of it, they had a bunch of side note, but when we look at Sears owned a lot of its stores and had a lot of assets, Kmart leased all of its stores. They were in bad locations and they had no assets. And I don't know why Sears thought it was a good decision to purchase them. But at the end of the day, it's one of the reasons that the company ended up failing. It's very easy to make mistakes on business fundamentals. Just like inventory and like what it means to like own it and like that as a liability. I don't know. I've made mistakes. And so I'd be like, oh, I could see like <laughs> why someone in a boardroom just like didn't think that like some things mattered as much as they should. Well, we're getting distracted. Like you own a few different businesses and what excites you to start a new one or like, Have you even closed any down? I've launched a bunch of companies that have failed. Uh, I've launched a bunch of brands that have failed. I've I've launched a SaaS company that failed. I would say the main thing that excites me is obviously the opportunity, but growing something. I really like building. That's like probably my favorite thing. All the businesses I've started have been bootstrapped. So we start from literally nothing and it's like a game. It's like, how do I get this to make money? You reinvest. Like that's probably... I think a lot of listeners will relate to just like, okay, you did well. I'm going to reinvest this to go bigger. Exactly. And I actually wish, so my first selling business, like we did really well. And, but I wish we would have taken more money home. That's like in those first years, that's what I would advise other people is like, you know, don't reinvest everything. Like if you've got like wins, like, I don't know, make some of that real. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, just like both of us, we're good examples of this is that when you have something that works in the space, like if you're good at e-commerce or you're good at building brands or whatever it may be, there are ways to iterate around what you're doing in e-commerce. I mean, you're doing it with Smart Scout, starting as a seller and then building a SaaS application. I started as a seller and then built it, built an agency out of it. So iterating around the space, there's a lot of opportunities still within e-commerce and that's kind of the way that we approach things when we're looking at new businesses, new opportunities, solving new problems. I'm sure maybe you can agree with that is that even with running your companies, you find new problems all the time that you get excited about and you're like, oh, wow, like I want to solve this. But sometimes it's a, it's a distraction and not, not worth the best use of your time. Well, sometimes it helps if you have a few advantages. I personally think that having some employees based out of Mexico, big advantage. Oh, yeah. You know, so if you're bringing someone out down there, you know, there's a cultural advantage. There's a labor arbitrage, you know, like the, the average salary in Mexico is not the same, but doesn't mean that like they're still smart. Like some of my favorite employees have been overseas. Once you get that connection, it is awesome. Yeah, completely. I mean, the talent we have down here is incredible. It is the US dollar is getting weaker. So it is making it a little bit more expensive for employees. Okay. But it also means it's a better opportunity to earn in other currencies. So that's another reason that we focus on, you know, the expansion piece so much. 
or maybe the Mexican peso is getting stronger. That is happening as well. Believe me, my rent has gone up about 20% in the past year because of this. So, Yeah, I just pulled it up. It's really climbed since the beginning of 2022. I actually think it's more about Mexico than it is about the U.S. Because I think the U.S. has done well against Europe in the last few years. There's a lot of different reasons. The main reason being that Mexico gave out no money during COVID and the U.S. gave out a ton of money and Mexico has higher interest rates. So in general, the currencies appreciated a lot because of making those two decisions where the U.S. printed a ton of cash and you know, now we're playing catch up on everything. So. Yeah. Exchange rates, it's big picture. It's macroeconomic. Cool. Well, Mike, it's been fun to like chat. I like Mexico. I speak Spanish. Wish I could spend more time there. Maybe I'll spend this entire winter there. I'll convince my wife, like, we're done. No, she'll probably get us down to Arizona, but the tacos aren't quite as good. No, I have a lot of friends that have moved down here. A lot of Americans living all over the country here, Guadalajara, Mexico City, Baja. It's great. I mean, you really can't complain about the quality of life or the weather or anything. So it's a good experience getting down here. Here's one of my favorite things is they have town squares, medium-sized cities, small cities, especially they like, you know, people congregate in the center of the town and like, so it's a little more exciting. It kind of has that walkability feature to it if you're around there. So I appreciate, you know, some of the cultural differences and I love it. Okay. Well, Mike, it's been great talking. Amazon Mexico is a real opportunity and actually a real opportunity to do it right. You know, NARF is like the easy, like, great. Like you got a few transactions in Mexico. Take those ones that were successful and give the Mexican population something better and you'll convert. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Look, if you're trying to not just take advantage of Amazon, but take advantage of all the other e-commerce platforms down here. I mean, again, like we said, Mercado Libre is roughly the same size as Amazon. So you're only reaching half of the potential sales that you can. So if you want to do it the right way, we can definitely help you. We're always glad to talk about it and yeah, we can schedule so, a call or something. Yeah, that's AMZ Advisors. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for coming on it and giving us your time. Of course. Thank you for having me here, Scott. Appreciate it. For everyone, thanks for listening in. Make sure you subscribe as we got more episodes every single week. And I hope you have a, a great, the end of 2023 selling. All right, take care. One, two, three. Yeah.